Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't, there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you. And uh, it's page number 724 uh, for the passage that we're going to be looking at. As you find your place there, as you find your place there, oh, we're good? Okay. Um, One quick thing I want to share with you that I'm excited to share with you is every year, uh, or every other year, sorry, this will be, I think, our fourth trip now. Uh, I, along with my good friend Kent Dobson, lead a pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine. And uh, our next trip is April 1 through 10, 2024. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, wow, you plan ahead. Yes, we do. And it's also great because it gives you some opportunity to make plans, to save, and everything else. So if you would like to join us on that, just send me an email, michael at denverchurch.org, or you can come chat with me after. We would love to have you join with us on that trip. Uh, It's quite a bit of fun. And for those who've already been, uh, they can tell you um, that they're really meaningful times together. So with that said, Luke chapter 9, begin reading in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. (laughs) I find humor in that every time I read it. I have no idea why. Uh, I just think it's great. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they encountered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. 
Now, this is one of, I would suggest, many passages in the sacred text that just defies meaning. It defies explanation. I mean, there are a lot of very odd details that Luke writes almost as though we're supposed to be picking up what he's laying down. I mean, he puts, begins by saying, eight days after Jesus had said these things, referring to a teaching that happens just before that. Why include that? Because if you read through the Gospels, you realize that there's very few times the Gospel writers talk anything about calendar or a span of time or a number of days. So why include that here? Why is Jesus hiking up a mountain to pray? Can't you pray anywhere? And why these three disciples? What did the other nine think? Why did he have to take them with him? And then it says Jesus' face changed. Well, then how did they know who he was? And what did it change into? And what did it look like? And why are his clothes all of a sudden gleaming like lightning? And then there's two people with him, Moses and Elijah. How do they know who they are? It's like, what, were they wearing name tags? Were there pictures around that people had? How do they know who these two individuals are? And how is it that Moses and Elijah know enough to talk to Jesus about his coming departure? And if you heard that, you'd probably be like, well, where are you going? And then you have this idea that the disciples were sleepy. Have you noticed the number of times in the Gospels where it says the disciples are praying and they're sleepy or they're praying and they fall asleep? Why, are, why is it that prayer always leads them to fall asleep? And then you have Peter who just starts talking. If you know anything about Peter, he's always talking. You would think in a moment like this, he would finally learn just to keep his mouth shut, but he doesn't. And then as fast as it all is unraveling, you have this cloud that comes over them. They're terrified. There's this voice that's speaking. And as fast as it comes in, everything vaporizes and it's back to normal. And then it says, and they didn't say anything to anyone. I mean, what a bizarre story. And as odd and bizarre as this story is, it has not kept some people from trying to explain it. One traditional explanation from within the Christian tradition is this. Moses is believed to be, he's traditionally believed to be the writer of the first five books of the Bible, which is often referred to as the law or as Torah. And so Moses, some have taught, represents the law. Elijah is one of the great prophets of Israel, and so Elijah represents the prophets. Now, in the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish mind, or there's a Jewish idiom that says the law and the prophets. That's a re reference to what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they would say Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Jesus represents the Gospels. And a voice says, listen to Jesus, which means Jesus is greater than the Old Testament. You're welcome. It's right there. It's just looking you right in the face. Others are like, no, I think the meaning is a little bit more subtle. You see, Peter makes a comment about building shelters. In other words, some would say he's talking about a tent, and we all know what the tent is, right? The tent is the tabernacle. The tent is the place where God dwelled among the people of Israel after they were liberated from slavery and his presence was in their midst. And others say, no, no, no. 
The word that Peter uses is more closely associated with Sukkot, which is a festival that celebrates God's deliverance from slavery. That's what Peter's referring to, except for the fact that Luke says Peter has no idea what he's talking about. So how do we generate meaning from that? Others say, no, you know what it is? There's a great story in Genesis chapter 24 where Moses, the great prophet, hikes up a mountain with his brother Aaron and Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And here we have a similar pattern. Jesus is hiking up a mountain with three of his disciples, just like Moses has three with him. And when Moses hikes up the mountain, a cloud comes over the mountain, just like we have here. And when Moses hikes up that mountain, there's a voice that speaks to him. It's God giving him the law. This is what we see, except for there's one detail in Exodus 24 that doesn't make sense. It's not just Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. There's also 70 elders with them. And even though there might be some parallels here, no one really knows what it means. It's just kind of like a fun party trick. And, and then what about the cloud? Oh, well, we know that God's presence is in the cloud. We see God's presence in the cloud all the time. God is present in a pillar of cloud as the people of Israel wander through Sinai. The glory of God is often depicted as a cloud, and it fills the tabernacle and later the temple. God's, voy or God's cloud dwells on top of the mountain when he gives the law to Moses. And we know that the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel look up and they see a cloud when they have this ecstatic vision. So clearly, there's something going on here. And then you say, but what? And everyone's like, I'm not sure. Because this passage is bizarre. This passage defies explanation. When it comes to trying to find meaning in it, it gets really, really difficult now, I understand that by even saying this at the beginning of a teaching, I might be breaking some unspoken agreements that we have between us here this morning. Be because one of the things I know is that over the years, one of the things the church has agreed to, both the pastors and the churchgoers, is that on a Sunday morning in a context like this, you all show up, there's a passage of Scripture read, and then the person on the platform explains to you what it means, and then you go, go, ah, I get what it means, and you now can apply it to your everyday life. That's just the way it works. Until a pastor stands up going, this defies explanation. And by the way, we don't just do this whole idea of like explaining things with the Bible. We do this with all sorts of things in the religious world, don't we? Like we really like to have things explained. We really like to understand things. And so we have all these doctrines and these dogmas and these explanations and books that are written that you can read and then you read through them and say, okay, now I understand. Now I know what it means. And it gives us a great deal of certainty, gives us some security. It gives us a way of believing. It gives us a way of navigating the world in which we live. It, it provides social cohesion and, and group connection. And I mean, after a while, you look around at a group the size of yours, and you're like, hey, if we all believe the same thing, there's no chance that we're wrong. As a matter of fact, we know we're right, and we're so happy we're right, because now that we've got it all nailed down, all we have to do is wait around for a while until God opens the door to the afterlife, and we get to spend a blissful existence together, all of us who believe the same thing. And if you don't believe like us, there's another door that's going to be open to you. And I hear it's really hot. That story works, by the way. 
And it's worked for thousands of years for billions of people. But that's really a shame, isn't it? And I say it's a shame because, honestly, the greatest moments, the greatest things that we experience in our life are actually the things and the moments that defy explanation. The things that when you try to put words to it, no matter how much you say, no matter how much you share, no matter how much you talk about it, you're not even beginning to tap into it because the things that mean the most to us defy explanation. Have you ever had a moment where you experience something and you find yourself trying to tell someone else about it and then you realize as you look at them like the apple pinwheel of death is just in their eyes? And you're like, ah, you had to be there. Even if you fancy yourself like a really good storyteller, you realize, I can't explain this to you. The only way you'll understand what I'm talking about is for you to have an experience on your own. I find it interesting that Peter, James, and John have this experience on the mountaintop, and the last detail that Luke gives is, And they didn't say anything. How could they? What would you say? How would you explain that? It's not casual dinner conversation. Oh, how was your weekend? Oh, man, you're never going to believe this. Kind of crazy. You tell them the story, and they're like, mountains? Altered states of consciousness? Definitely sounds like you live in Colorado. Because whatever it is you experienced, I don't get it. Thousands of years later, we come to a text and we're going, I don't know if I understand this. No matter how much has been written, no matter how many people have tried to explain it, I don't understand this. Which is beautiful because this is exactly maybe what Luke is inviting us to consider. That this is just an encounter with the divine. And one thing I know is this. As good as it feels to really think you're right about your beliefs, as much as certainty can at some level be comforting, as secure as it can feel to feel like you have all of the answers about God and the Bible and life and humanity and suffering, that will only take you so far until the moment you have an encounter, you have an experience And all of a sudden, all of that certainty and security and answers, you find they don't really work anymore. And as long as I have lived, I've never had anyone say, man, I just heard about this new doctrine really is reshaping my life. I've never heard anyone say, yeah, I'm a part of a congregation and we're very dogmatic. It's really producing deep and lasting life transformation. No, what changes lives are experiences. What changes lives are encounters. One of the conversations that I have in all sorts of different ways with so many of you is that you had some sort of religious connection, religious upbringing, or you would go to your grandparents in the summer and they would take you to church, and you kind of had this understanding of it. But then there was a moment where you had an encounter. You had an experience. 
Something happened that you can't quite explain or categorize. It, it doesn't line up nicely in bullet points or 12 statements of belief on your website. And all of a sudden you go, oh, how do I even begin to explain that? Because whatever this was, it felt bigger than me. And it defies explanation. The 20th century theologian, a guy named Rudolf Otto, he refers to these moments as numinous experiences or numinous encounters. And what he says is this. He's like, you have an experience of the other, capital O, other. And he says, who it is or what it is can't be spoken. But you have this experience, and in this experience of this other, there's a level of fear and dread that comes over you. Notice in the text we just read, it says that when the cloud comes, the disciples experience fear. There's a fear and dread, but it's not like you're terrified. It's almost this intense wonder and awe. And in this numinous experience, in this fear and dread and intense awe, while you are afraid, you're also drawn toward whatever this other is. And in this experience of the other, something in you profoundly shifts. Now, at a very, very lower level, let me share maybe a, a way of understanding this. Years ago, I was out camping with my family, and we went, we found a spot, and we were down near this river, and there was a little bit of a marsh area over there, and someone had told us, hey, this is like an area where there's a lot of moose. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to see a moose. Now, for those of you who are not aware, moose are not like deer. Moose would love to kill you. You're like, I thought they ate plants. They do. They just kill you because they're a little crazy. Now, I thought everyone around Colorado knew that until one time I was leading a retreat and there was a moose and several people were like, oh, let's run over and take pictures. And I was like, that's a bad idea. No one was hurt, by the way, just so you know. So we set up camp. I set up my hammock a little bit away from the campsite and I'm, we're all done like setting everything up and I'm laying in my hammock and I hear my daughter walking over to me and then I hear her footsteps stop and then I feel a hand on my shoulder and really quietly she says, Dad, there's a moose. And I was like, yes. And I look up and the moose is like where the front row is. Remember, they kill people. But it was a full-grown bull moose. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a full-grown bull moose in real life or that close. Thankfully, there was several aspen trees between me and it. But I knew any sudden movement will trigger this thing, and I'll probably put my daughter in front of me and run. <laughs> and because I didn't want to go down as like the worst parent in history, I know some of you are like, you already are. You just admitted this to like all of us. I got out of the hammock really, really slowly, and my heart was just slamming. I had my daughter behind me, and we're backing up, and I'm thinking, please don't see us. Please don't see us. And all of a sudden, he turns his head real slow at that massive rack, kind of looks at us and thinks, nah, that's not the kind of guy I want, <laughs> and then goes back to eating. 
And as we're like backing up into the campsite, and as I have this fear, and as I'm saying things like, make sure the dog is on the leash, at the same time, I wanted to take pictures of it, and I wanted to get close to it, and I wanted to look at it more. There was this sense of like fear, and oh my goodness, this is beautiful. Have any of you ever had that experience? These moments where you're both afraid and drawn towards something. This, we're talking about just a moose, by the way. This is what the disciples are experiencing with the divine. The thing that transcends explanation. I can explain a moose. How do you begin explaining a cloud in a voice in someone's clothing shimmering like lightning and two people who've long thought to be dead are there and they're glorious in their appearance? I think we might all start saying things that make no sense too. These are the kinds of experiences, these are the kinds of encounters that are what shape us and reshape us and renew us and forever change the direction of our lives. There's one encounter that's told in the uh, Hebrew scriptures in Genesis chapter 28 of a man named Jacob. Jacob has basically just swindled his brother Esau. He's trying to get out of town because he knows it's a bad idea for him to stay around. And it says this, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep because stones are great pillows. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back into this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I, I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He has this experience. He wakes up. All of a sudden, he realizes, oh my gosh, God was here, and I, I was not aware of it. And then it says, and he was afraid. But then we find that he builds an altar and he names the place, that there's something that draws him to it. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible really is a long book of people encountering the divine. Jacob's grandfather Abraham has this encounter with God in Genesis chapter 17 where there's this thick, dreadful darkness that falls over and it says this blazing torch moves toward Abraham. God's saying, I will carry my end of the promise. You have Moses, who is in the desert tending sheep for his father-in-law, and he sees a bush that's on fire but does not burn up. And when he gets closer to it, he hears Moses, Moses, remove your shoes, for you are on holy ground. You have Isaiah, the prophet, who has this vision where he's in the temple and he sees the glory of God high and lifted up and the train of God's robe fills the temple. You have Ezekiel, another prophet, on the banks of the Kabar River in Babylon who has this vision of four heavenly creatures singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You have Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who while doing his duties at the temple encounters an angel and is so dumbstruck 
And so in wonder, he can't speak for months until his son is born. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is sitting and an angel appears to her and says, Hail, favored one. God needs your help. You have the Apostle Paul who's on a road to a place called Damascus who's confronted by Jesus who comes to him in the sky. All of these stories of encounters, and what I find fascinating is you don't see the biblical writers going, so just so you know what all of this means. Now, the biblical writers just tell story after story after story, and what I love is they don't explain it, but what they do point toward is that nobody is the same after they have these encounters. No one is the same after they have an encounter or an experience of God. Something within them changes. And this is true of Jacob, who said, surely God was in this place, and I was not aware of it. The rabbis say, if Jacob had known that God was in that place, he wouldn't have fallen asleep. One conversation between rabbis says, is the divine difficult to find? And they say, no, God's not hard to find. It's just that all of us, like Jacob, are asleep. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, in speaking about this, says this, He says, when you look closely, and for a long time, you discover things that are invisible to others. Most people make the mistake of trying to look deeper when all they need to do is pay attention to the obvious. It's just staring at one thing for a long time. This is how you begin to wake up. This is how you begin to really see. And maybe if we did this, we, like Jacob, would begin to say, surely God was in this place, but I was unaware of it. Surely God was in this place, but I was asleep. God's not difficult to find. It's just that we're not paying attention. This is what you begin to realize when you hear about all of these numinous encounters and these experiences with the divine that we see all throughout Scripture is that somebody finally wakes up. I mean, this is actually what Luke says. He says the disciples were very sleepy. What a great, like, really sleepy, really tired. They'd hiked. They hadn't apparently eaten much. Their blood sugar's off, they're praying, so their eyes are closed. You know what that leads to. And it says, but when they were fully awake, they saw the glory of Jesus and the glory of the two that were with them. But only after they were fully awake. I wonder how many of us this morning would say, yeah, no, 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 I live fully awake. I'm fully awake. I wonder how many of us would look at the world in which we live and say, oh, yeah, we're painfully aware. Eyes wide open, all of us. I mean, have we ever lived in a time that's more distracted than this one? Let me repeat that just in case you were distracted. (laughs) Have we ever lived in a time that's more distracted than this one? You have something in your pocket or in your purse or in the thing that all the cool kids are wearing right now. Uh, it's digital, and you get notifications on it. How pointless are 98% of the notifications you're getting? You're like, oh, the Warriors lost to the Lakers. Glad I got notified about that. 
Nobody cares about the NBA. And if you do, <laughs> if you do, come talk to me and I'll tell you about what it was like when they used to play basketball in that league. How distracted are we? Always, always glued to something. How fast does all of the news move? Several weeks ago, I texted my friend David, who's a pastor in Nashville, and said, oh my God, I heard the news. I want you to know our heart's with you, and we're praying for you. And he texted back. My wife's a therapist. She's meeting with people who are connected to the school and families of one of the victims. We have people in our congregation who know people who are at that school. And so we texted back and forth for days. A week and a half later, I texted him and said, these are probably the worst moments. It's when everybody's moved on. It's quiet. It's like the rest of the world has gone back to normal, and you are still there picking up the pieces. And he said, thank you. It seems like everyone's forgotten. Some of you might be like, oh, yeah, Nashville, the shooting, the kids, the school. Yes. But it's hard to keep track of because this morning we woke up to what? Another news of more shootings in Texas, this time eight people dead, seven people injured? Are you kidding me? And as painful as that may feel right now, you know what? In two weeks there's going to be more stories and all the people who are mourning the deaths of their loved ones this morning will have forgotten and moved on. If anything characterizes the age in which we live is that we have been lulled to sleep by the technology and the pace of the world in which we live. It's no surprise that we struggle to have an encounter with God. Some of you might be like, okay, well, tell me the three things I need to do to have an encounter. No, this is the problem. You can't schedule it. You can't plan it. You can't say the right things or do the right things. What we can do is pay attention. What we can do is wake up. And maybe if we do, we'll see that the world in which we live is aflame with the glory of God. Maybe this is why the psalmist said the whole earth is filled with God's glory. It's just that we don't seem to be able to see it. We seem to be asleep in the midst of the glorious. And it is all around us. Look at the person next to you for a moment. And by the way, if you don't know them, this might be awkward. <laughs> but just look at them. You know what you are? You are a collection of billions of molecules that until the, day before, until the time that you were conceived weren't you. You are a collection of molecules that was something else for a long time. Pete Holmes says, you might have a molecule in you that was part of Abraham Lincoln's beard. It's possible. But somehow when you were conceived, when you grew in your mother's womb, as you showed up this morning, you are now a collection of molecules that nobody has ever seen in the history of the universe. Now, as if that's not unique enough, there's also the thing in you that makes you, you. But no one can tell you what that is. You're like, well, it's life. Okay, fine. Ask 13 different people what life is, and they all go, we don't know. Because somehow all the molecular makeup you have inside of you will remain the same even if you're dead, but somehow when you're dead, you're not you. And so whatever the you is, like, we don't know. This is why C.S. Lewis said, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If we saw one another in our full glory, we'd be tempted to lay down and worship. Maybe we should tape that on our steering wheels. 
your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses so that next time when you're on I-25 and someone cuts you off and you roll down your window and you're like, hey, buddy, you look at the steering wheel and you're like, you're the holiest object presented to my senses, right? That would really throw them for a loop, by the way. They'd be like, that guy is crazy. What happens if we learn to pay attention? It's not just your neighbor. It's the breeze. It's the trees. It's the wildlife, the animals. It's the flowing creeks. It's the clouds. It's the stars. It's the cosmos. What if we woke up? What if we paid attention? This is actually my prayer for all of you, is that you would simply wake up, that you would open your eyes, that you would pay attention to the glorious that is all around us. And my reason that I pray this for all of us here this morning is because if that happens and you have an encounter, it has the power to change your life. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you, you would remove whatever blinders, whatever scales, whatever covers our eyes. That you would give us glimpses, that you'd give us moments that would bring us to the place of us saying, like Jacob, surely God was in this place and I, I was not aware of it. Cause us to see Cause us to know, cause us to understand your glory is in all places and it transcends what we can explain. But in those moments, it also has the power to reshape our lives. May it be so. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends said, amen. Amen.